Amen. Well, turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 16. Hallelujah. For those of you that are just joining us, we've been on a series called uh, All In, which we have been charting through the book of Acts, chapter by chapter. But before we dive in, just to kind of well, maybe lighten the mood here for just a moment, I want to share with you a, a story. It's about a couple of Major League Hall of Famers, Yogi Berra and Hank Aaron. Does anyone know who that is? Okay. Well, it was during 1957, and the two players were facing one another in the World Series. Yogi was the catcher for the New York Yankees, and Hank was the power hitter for the Milwaukee Braves. Now, Yogi was known for his constant chatter to all of the batters trying to distract them, and Aaron steps up to the plate. The first pitch that came his way was a strike. So Yogi thought that he would take advantage of the situation, and he said to Hank, he said, Hank, you're holding the bat wrong. You're supposed to hold it so that you can read the trademarks. Hank didn't respond. And with the next pitch, he hit it to the left center field bleachers. And then after rounding the bases, he tagged home, and Hank stopped. He looked at Yogi, and he said, I claim, came to play ball, not to read. Come on. <laughs> now, I share that story because watch this, how fitting. There's going to be the Yogi Berras in life. I'm talking about people places, circumstances that will try to dissuade or distract us from what God has called us to do. As a matter of fact, we read about this in the last couple chapters in Acts 14 and 15, where we saw a consistent adversary, or I'm sorry, a consistent effort on behalf of our adversary, Satan, trying to stop the advancement of the gospel. And I reiterate this because I want to remind you of something. The enemy's tactic and his mission hasn't changed. Like if anything, um, he has a bigger toolbox to work for than uh, what they had in the first century. And I mentioned this last week whenever I talked about all of the endless entertainment options uh, that exist in our generation. And I also uh, shared with you a little bit about the etymology of the word entertainment and how when you look at its root word, it comes from another word called um, distraction. Now, what I didn't share with you last week, and I learned that back in around the 13th century, the Europeans always had all of these creative ways of trying to kill people. Uh, some of them, it's, it's hard to even read about. I read a little bit, bit about it this week, and one way that they would uh, kill people is they would do what's called drawn and quarters. Have you heard that? I may have shared this with you once before, but they would take a rope and they would tie it onto each limb, and then they would have four horses, and each of these horses would uh, then be uh, prodded to go in different directions to where their limbs were just pulled apart through death. And that was known as a process uh, called distraction. So people would say that there was a death by distraction. I feel like I could preach on this probably the rest of my message because we see this happening in our country. We even see this happening in our 
churches, but I'm so thankful for the men and the women of God that we read about here in the book of Acts who refuse to be distracted, who uh, do not fall into the temptation or the pressure that's placed up on them, but yet they stayed resolute. They were determined and they were unwavering in their faith even when their life was at stake. And watch this. It's easy to get pressure from someone who will stand up and say something in a church. That's easy. But what are we going to do whenever our life is on the line? And I feel like, church, that we've got to dial in and we've got to hear this. And we can't just see this as church history of something that happened 2,000 years ago. Because I can promise you that in countries all over the world, there are people who are faced with this very thing all the time. So let's look. Now, you should be in Acts chapter 16. I'm going to read us uh, the first five, five verses, and then I'm going to stop. We're going to discuss it. The scripture says that Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. And they went on their way through the cities. They delivered them for observance. Sorry. They delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in number daily. Now let's just pause here for a second. Chapter 16 gives us a whole lot of material to cover. Uh, so I'm not going to do a comprehensive dive into each paragraph, nor am I going to read the entire uh, chapter. But I want to at least highlight certain points in this text that I think is important for us to know. Acts chapter 16 begins with Paul meeting a young man named Timothy. Now, none of us know exactly what that introduction looked like between Paul and Timothy or just exactly how much time they spent together in Lystra. But what we do know is that Paul saw great potential in Timothy, and he invited him to accompany him on his mission journeys, to which Timothy agreed. Then in verse 3, it says that Paul circumcised Timothy. Now, I don't know what you think whenever you, you read this, but when I first read this, I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Okay. You talk about questions, Jacob. Like, I had questions when I read this. I'm like, okay, what in the world is this all about? Because I know what we read in the last two chapters, and in the last two chapters, it says that circumcision uh, didn't, ha you didn't have to be saved in order to be circumcised. So what's up with this, right? Well, first, let me just tackle this thought, all right? This is one of the things that I love about going, like, verse by verse. It forces you to talk about things as to where some pastors may want to cherry pick it. And uh, I came to this one, and I, I was tempted, but I'm like, God, there's something here, and I'm so thankful that I didn't give in to that temptation because there's something powerful for us to learn here. Let me first off just kind of say that Paul circumcising Timothy had nothing to do with salvation, all right? Let's just lay the groundwork for that. Had nothing to do with salvation. Timothy was already a Christian, and we know this because the Scripture says that in verse 1. So the big question is, why did Paul do this? Because this is not a small ask from Paul. I mean, shaving your beard would be one thing, but circumcision, right? 
Well, the answer is given right here in verse 3. It says, he did it because of the Jews that were in those places. Now, keep in mind that any time that Luke would use the word Jews in the book of Acts, like he would be saying it in reference to them or in the context of them not being believers. And certainly that was the intent here. Paul knew what needed to be done in order to effectively reach Jewish unbelievers. So in effect, Paul asked this of Timothy for three primary reasons. You may want to write these three down. I don't think I put these in my notes. But first one was cultural sensitivity. The second one was prioritizing the mission. And three was contextualizing the gospel. And all three of these were needed in order to effectively reach the Jewish unbelievers for Christ. Now, let me just try, if I could, uh, to put this in a more modern-day scenario. In the late 1800s, a missionary named James Gilmore went to Mongolia, where he went to share the gospel with the people there. And initially, when Gilmore arrived, he was met with resistance as he was just seen as someone who was trying to impose his beliefs on them. But then Gilmore considered what we're talking about today. And he found a way to connect with the Mongolian people. He began by learning the Mongolian language. Then he learned about their customs, trying to understand their way of life. Gilmore realized that if he wanted to reach the Mongolian people, that he was going to have to connect somehow. And he realized that the Mongolian people, that they were this nomadic people who they traveled with their herds of sheep and, and goats across the vast company or the uh, country. And so he decided to join them. He decided to start traveling with them, living in a traditional uh, Mongolian uh, gur or yurt, which basically is just like a round portable tent that they used when they were traveling. And then he began taking part in their daily activities. And after learning their culture, see, that's the first point right there, cultural sensitivity, then he began to prioritize the mission. That's, that's the second point. He knew the purpose for which he was doing what he was doing, which in much of the same way was what we hear the Apostle Paul say in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 9 when he says, I become all things to all people that by all means I may win the more, Right? Church, can I just say that I think this is where we as Christians, we often fail to reach others who are different than us. You see, Timothy or, or Gilmore, uh, th they neither one sinned by engaging in culture. Are, are you hearing with me? I know sometimes when we, we step into another person's culture, we feel like, oh, I'm doing something wrong. But neither one of them sinned. Like if they sinned, that would be a, a different story. But, but what they were doing right here, it cost them something. It costs them in order to be truly effective in reaching the people. So Gilmore, having understood their culture and customs, began to tell them stories from the Bible that related to their nomadic lifestyle of the Mongolian people. And this is the, the third point that I mentioned, which is contextualizing the gospel. He told the people about the shepherds that were mentioned in the Bible and how that Jesus was often referred to as the uh, good shepherd who cared for his flock. Well, over time, Gilmore's efforts to connect with the Mongolian people began to pay off in a big way. 
He gained their trust, their respect, and many of them came to know Christ as a result. His efforts paved the way to what is now close to 40,000 Christians that live there. Now, I'll tell you this to ask. What would you be willing to do for people coming to know Christ? Maybe you're thinking, well, Pastor, I couldn't do any of the things that you mentioned here today. <laughs> okay, I, I hear you, but what could you do? Because everybody can do something. May I throw out a suggestion? Get to know someone that's different than you. Step outside of your comfort zone and take the risk of having a meal with someone that's unlike you. Hey, that's what Jesus did all the time, right? When you think about it, I mean, like, he was constantly engaging with people who were different than him. Just like the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well, right? Even though there was a long, outstanding um, animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, Jesus engages a conversation with the woman. He showed a deep understanding of the Samaritan culture as well as her personal struggles. And he did so with empathy, compassion, and respect which broke down all the barriers that existed between them. Church, can I just say that I believe that what we're talking about right now is one of the keys to seeing racism brought to an end. Civil rights activist Maya Angelou once said, perhaps travel cannot prevent bigotry, but by demonstrating that all people cry, laugh, eat, worry, and die, it can introduce the idea that if we can try and understand one another, we may even become friends. I'm talking about us stepping outside of our comfort zones and being willing to get to know people who are different than us for the purpose of allowing our lights to shine. I think Timothy's willingness to say yes serves as an example that when we choose to make a sacrifice for reaching people for Christ, God will use us to be his vessel. But the problem that I see with a lot of American Christianity is that no one wants to make sacrifices. Like we expect everyone else to be the ones who evangelize, who give money, or who make disciples. But when the majority of Christians have that mindset, we're left in with just a handful of people who are now accomplishing the mission. Are y'all with me this morning, church? Probably a time I think that I would bring up the parable of the talents and remind those who have been holding on and hiding your talent that there is a big responsibility that you and I have been given. Hello? Not only responsibility, but the commission that we've been given, church, is such a great privilege. I mean, what honor exists that's greater than sharing the love of God with humanity? You see, this is why Timothy said yes. He knew what was at stake. He knew that the souls of men and women were on the line, and so he gladly allowed Paul to do what he did. Friends, what would you do if you knew that it meant someone's eternal destiny would be changed as a result. Would you serve at a soup kitchen? 
would you start to tithe? Would you hand out gospel tracts or some of those beautiful Destiny Church invitations that we have out there at guest services table? Would you go on a mission trip? We got one that we're going on this year. Would you lead a community group? Would you serve in the nursery or children's ministry? Well, can I just tell you that I have witnessed lives changed from each of those things that I just mentioned to you. Hey, I gave my life to Christ as a result of someone who invited me to their community group. They called them life groups. I think they've been called life groups, cell groups, small groups, community groups, right? But I was, I was invited to someone's community group. As a matter of fact, my wife gave her life to Christ as a result of a Sunday school teacher who shared the gospel each week and gave an invitation at the end of each lesson. Church, hear me on this, and thank you for those of you that serve our children. Thank you. Parents, you should say thank you because they're not babysitting these kids. I go back and I see the curriculum and I see what they're doing. They're praying over these kids. They're speaking the word of God over these kids. And watch this. I can guarantee you that that Sunday school teacher has no idea that there's a Jody Tomlinson out there today. But you know what? There's some Jody Tomlinsons back in the nursery right now and in the children's ministry that's going to be out there one day carrying the torch that you and I carry today and running hard with it. Are you with me this morning? Here's one thing that I know for sure is that, and I said this to you guys at the beginning of this year, if you remember this, that in 2023, this is going to be the year of revival. And watch this, but revival isn't going to come through passive Christianity. It's going to come through active Christians. I'm sure that almost all of you have already heard about what God is doing in Asbury, right? Okay? Revival's happening there. That's what's, what's happening. Not only that, but guess what? It's happening out. The, the last I heard, there's at least six or eight campuses that, it, that it's beginning to happen across our nation in. And, and do you know what all of those have in common? As a matter of fact, I just read this early this morning. It popped up in my feed. All these big-name speakers, they've been reaching out to Asbury, lending their services. And this was the response. I love it. A nameless, faceless generation for his renown. Praise God. But these, all these big speakers, they're, they're offering their services, and they said, we appreciate your offer, but no thank you. However, if you would like to come, you're welcome to come and stand in line. It might be a little difficult to find a seat. You'll probably have to grab a seat in the back, but you're invited to come. Come on, somebody. They're allowing this thing to be organic and allowing the students to lead it, and they're not allowing big screens, skinny jings, and all of these other big things to pop up, fog machines to take center stage. They're letting the Spirit of God have its way, and Jesus takes center. Isn't that a beautiful thing? It's simple. It's simple. And really what it is is it's people that's getting up because I've been watching little aspects of it that people's putting on social media. I think every single person, I think, I, man, I must have an awesome group of friends on social media because everybody is talking about it. I even saw the other day Fox News is talking about it. Come on, you know that's getting somebody's attention right there, right? But people are getting up and they're repenting. Hmm. I think I recall somewhere, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, turn from the wicked ways, that's called repentance. But these students are getting up and they're repenting for things either that they've done or that they've not done. 
And you know what else it is? It's people getting up and sharing testimonies. It ain't nobody grandstanding. It ain't nobody up there trying, if they're trying to get the light to come back up on them, man, I love that they're guarding and they're protecting that in this revival. But church, I wonder, what would our churches, what would this church look like? What would the churches here in Jacksonville look like if we followed suit? If we lived in a spirit of repentance, saying, Lord, I'm turning from what I've been doing, and I'm turning toward what you've called us to do. Like if we started giving testimony to the goodness and the faithfulness of God. I want to prepare you for this because I believe this is the year of revival. I believe it's going to happen in the city. You put me down on the record as saying it. I believe that Jacksonville is going to be a place that is known for revival. And when that happens, watch this. Let me tell you something about a revival. Because when I, I was young, old school, back in the day, they, you know, people would put up a banner and they would have a three-day revival. They would, they would plan it. But can I tell you something about a revival? You can no more plan a revival than you can plan a hurricane. But you can position yourself for it. You can get your heart ready. Right? And you can be prepared on the inside so that whenever the Spirit of God comes, you're already there. Are you, are, are you with me? I know this. If we're going to see it happen, it's going to be if we follow suit and what we're seeing happen in all these other revivals. That's what's going to bring revival. And listen, I don't know about you, but I think I know the answer from this church body, but you count me all in. Amen? All right. All that just came from Timothy getting circumcised. <laughs> Help me, Jesus. Uh, let's look at verse 6. Uh, let me give you a little bit of heads up. It's probably going to take two weeks before we get through chapter 16. That's all right. Um, 16, verse 6 is through 10. Let's read these. Uh, it says, And they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately we saw to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Now, I want us to just stop here and talk a little bit about what we just read. The disciples were told by the Holy Spirit to not speak the word in Asia. And when they attempted to go to Bithynia, they were told to not go there either. And what's the lesson for us here? Well, it's an important one, so you might want to write this one down. The no's from God are just as important as the go's from God. I'm talking about times where God gives us a red light when at other times he gives us a green light. And I think that it's important that we catch this because in our humanity, we have the propensity to think that, you know, what we feel is right, what we think is right. And watch this. It might even actually be right. But the right thing at the wrong time is still the wrong thing. Are you with me? I mean, certainly preaching the gospel in Asia wasn't a bad thing. 
preaching in Bithynia was not a bad thing either, but it would have been bad for them because God told them not to go there. Church, what we're talking about here in this point in the passage is being led by the Holy Spirit. It's us not leaning on our own understanding of what we think we should do or we shouldn't do, but it's us trusting that God will lead our each and every step. And church, he will. Psalms 37 to 23 says, the steps of our good man are established, or some translations say are ordered by the Lord when he delights in his way. Now, it's so interesting. I've heard this scripture. Daniel, have you heard this so many times? People will preach it and say the steps of a good man are ordered of the Lord. But they forget right there that there's a comment that says when he delights in his way. Understand the word delight. I've taught this to you in times past. means that we've got to be soft and we've got to be pliable before the Lord. So we can't just expect, well, God's just going to lead my steps. That's wonderful. But the scripture goes on to teach us that it's when we delight in his way. And it's important that we catch this because this is so significant for our lives. Because a lot of Christians make decisions based on several different factors. They will consider things like, is it convenient? Or how much will it cost me? Others will make decisions based on their emotions or how they feel. While some will make decisions based upon what people think about them or peer pressure. While some will make decisions based on uh, fear or based on past bad experiences that they've had. But the problem with each of these is that they aren't a reliable guide. What I mean is, is that most of these things are self-centered decisions. And watch this. Self-centered decisions will never lead you towards your God-given destiny. You see, for the true follower of Jesus Christ, our aspiration is to have our hearts reflect His. That means that our hearts, they will break for the things that break the heart of God. And our hearts will be filled with joy for the things that bring Him joy. Let me ask you something. What are things do you think grieves the heart of God? Have you ever thought about, have you, have you ever con considered that thought? Because the Bible does mention several times, actually, where God's heart was, was hurt or, or, or grieved. Let me just mention a, a few of the things that grieve God's heart. Sin, idolatry, and disobedience grieve the heart of God. And if you don't believe it, then let me just give you one proof text here. Genesis 6, 5, and 6 says that when God saw man's wickedness, his heart was deeply troubled. Now, I don't know about you, but the fact that how I live my life can somehow affect God, well, that, that, that's a mystery right there that I can't understand. But we know that it's true because his word says it. See, that right there causes me to take a whole other look about the things that I do. Because the things that I do, they don't just affect me or the people around me, but they also have an effect on the heart of God. But sin isn't the only thing that grieves the heart of God. So does injustice and oppression. 
That's why we're called to uh, defend the oppressed and to take up the cause of injustice. And then, of course, there's human suffering, which very much grieves the heart of God. By the way, I just want to throw this out there for those of you that right now, that you're, you're walking through some form of suffering in your life. Uh, maybe it is grief, you know, may, maybe it is uh, physical pain. Um, there's, there's a word for you. It's in Psalm 34 and verse 18. The scripture says, the Lord is close to the brokenhearted, and he saves those who are crushed in spirit. Come on, aren't you thankful for that? Aren't you thankful that we serve a God who sees us when we're down and he takes care of us just as a father or a mother would care for their child? But of course he would, right? Why? Because we are his children. As a matter of fact, I just feel prompted right now to just let someone know you are a child of God. Come on, turn to the person next to you and say, you are a child of God. And as a child of God, let me just remind you, to stir you up by the way of reminder, that there are benefits as being a child of God. Like, first of all, we have access to God. Praise God for that. That means that we can come to him. We can bring our cares and our concerns to him, and he will listen. And not only will he listen, but he will respond. Hey, he is an active father. But what other benefits do we have? Well, we have his guidance, which is much of, of similar to what we're reading about right here with the, the disciples. We have the promise of peace, which means that no matter what we face in life, we know that God is both for us, right? And he is not only for us, but with us. Oh, and here's a big one. <laughs> Come on. As a child of God, our identity is secure in him. And praise God, nothing can change that. I mean, even if you don't believe it, guess what? It's still true. You know what? I could talk about benefits all day long, but let me just mention this one right here that is huge. And I pray that this right here is one that no matter what you face in your life, because this is my go-to, right? Anytime I find myself with something that's pressed, and I've had a lot pressed against me in the last year of my life. And every time that I find myself pressed, this right here is my go-to. We have the promise of heaven. Come on, somebody. Can you thank God for that? I expected a little bit better response from that one right there. Maybe you've not, not walked through anything in your life. That's okay. Someday you will. And when you do, I hope that you will be reminded that we have the promise of heaven, church family, that is so good. I don't know if you think about that as much as I do. I think about heaven often because guess what? This world is not my home. This world is not my home. We are sojourners on this earth just passing through. Heaven is my home. Come on. And that truth alone fills us with hope, knowing that no matter what we face here in our temporary dwelling, we have an eternal hope with God where there will be no more sadness, where there will be no more grieving, where there will be no more depression, where there will be no more pain. And 
By the way, can I just tell you that I believe that we're called as ambassadors of heaven to bring heaven here on earth. When Jesus taught us to pray, I pray thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. God wants us to make this world look a little more like heaven. That's our job. That's your job description, by the way, Christian, is to bring heaven here on earth. No matter what tunnel we find ourselves in, there is always light at the end of it for the child of God. Praise God. Okay, let's look at this one last section of Acts chapter 16, and we'll uh, finish up the second half next week. Acts 16 is a significant portion of Scripture in that this is the first recording of the first European Christian, and it's a woman named Lydia. And so let's read about it. Acts 16, we're going to read verses 11 through 15. It says, so setting sail from Troas, we made a direct voyage to Samothrace. I'll say that fast and quick and move right along, and you'll think I know what I'm saying. Uh, and the following day to Neapolis, and from there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in the city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed that there was a place of prayer. Isn't that interesting? We see several places in Scripture when they were on their way to prayer, and on their way there, God showed up. Hmm. And so we sat down and we spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a city of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. And the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was being said. Thyatira, there we go. We get it right the first time. And she was baptized and her household as well. And she urged us saying, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Matter of fact, I love that phrase right there. She prevailed upon us because what that means is that Lydia strongly urged or persuaded Paul and Silas to come and to stay at her house. And her persistence in inviting them to her home, it was a reflection of her gratitude and her enthusiasm for the gospel. Now, let me just share a little bit about who Lydia was. Not only was she the, the first European convert, but she was also a very wealthy and influential woman. As a matter of fact, there are several uh, second and third century theologians who mention Lydia in their writings. And each of them talk about her hospitality and her funding the mentioning of the gospel. Tertullian, a North African theologian and an apologist, talks about how she used her wealth to advance the cause of the ministry. And I mention this because we need men and women of God who can finance the advancement of the kingdom and the work of the ministry. As a matter of fact, I'm thankful for the Lydia's that we have in our church body. I'm talking about both men and women who could uh, easily have spent the money on themselves if they wanted, but they don't. Instead, they, they give it in order to see the advancement of the gospel because they believe in the message of Jesus. And so let me just throw out a big thank you to all of those of you who give, and many of you give even sacrificially. And so thank you for advancing uh, the kingdom and, and making the causes of God a priority. We need more Lydia's in the body of Christ. Now, some people may hear that and think, yeah, well, if I had extra, I'd give more. 
But can I just share something with you? It's not about the sum. It's about the sacrifice. I said it's not about the sum. It's about the sacrifice. Hey, the story of the widow's might teaches us that principle. Because $100 to you would be like $1,000 to someone else. And $1,000 to someone else would be like 10000 to another. But what God has called us all to is to live and to give a life of sacrifice. Much like the church in Philippi, whom Paul thanked for their sacrificial giving. And the Macedonian church, who even though they were poor, now catch this, I, I love that Paul mentions this, who even though they were poor, gave sacrificially to support the work of the gospel. As a matter of fact, the apostle Paul uh, praises their generosity by saying that they gave beyond their means out of their deep love for God and his people. Amy Carmichael, the missionary who served in India in the late 19th century and the early 20th century, once said, you can give without loving, but you cannot love without giving. Come on, how many of you guys believe that that's true? Amen. Let me wrap up all that we talked about this morning. First, we talked about stepping outside of our comfort zone and meeting people different than us for the purpose of sharing Christ. Then we talked about the nose of God and the goes of God and how that God will lead our steps as to what we should or shouldn't do, which oftentimes means that we're not going to understand his direction. And then last but not least, we talked about the importance of making sacrifices in order to advance the kingdom. Friends, let me just tell you something. The kingdom of God is advancing with or without us. Like whether we're in the game or whether we're on the sideline comes down to one thing. And that's us saying from the depths of our heart to God, I'm all in. I'm all in. Come on, if you're all in this morning, I want you to stand to your feet with me right now. And just as a sign of surrender to God, say to him, Lord, I'm all in. I'm all in. Come on, just join me in prayer if you would. Heavenly Father, we say to you, God, that we are all in. Lord, we worship you. We bless you. We thank you, O oh Lord, for your grace. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you, God, that we have the privilege of being called sons and daughters. Lord, I pray that your spirit would be upon us in such a way, Lord, that we would be bold as a lion and that, that we would be courageous in our faith. God, we want to see revival in our churches and in our city. Use us, Father, as vessels of your love and your power so that all who see us may see, see the glory. Lord, not us, not to us, not to us, but to your name be the glory, O oh Lord. For it's your name, it's your renown, Lord. It's the desire of our heart. Thank you, God, that you've given us the promise of your presence to lead us and to guide us. We say that we will follow you with all of our heart, all of our mind, all of our soul, and all of our strength. And we ask, Lord, for your love to flow through us. Lord, may it flow through us in such a way, God, that we would love our neighbors as ourselves. For to you and you alone belong all honor and glory and power forever and ever. And all of God's sins say, amen. Come on, let's worship the Lord.